Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hi there and welcome to the Stock Club Podcast, coming to you from the top floor of my Wall Street HQ here in Dublin, Ireland. I'm James, and with me this week is my Wall Street co-founder and chief investor, Emmett Savage, and our head analyst, Rory Caron. In this week's episode, we're talking about the impact of the coronavirus on the market, Bob Iger stepping down as CEO of Disney, and figuring out which companies will benefit from the growing legalization of gambling in the US. So guys, before we start off today's podcast, uh, former New York Mayor Mike Bloomberg dropped out of the race for the Democratic presidential nomination this week. It's reported he spent at least $400 million on his campaign to date before dropping out. So I want to ask you guys, how many trips to space with Virgin Galactic could he have got <laughs> for that amount of money? <laughs> well, let's see. So we spent, I, so you're right, there's varying numbers. $410 million, I think. $410 million. Okay. I'll go with that one. Uh, so at a price point at the moment to space, I think of a quarter of a million dollars. Yeah. So about <laughs> 1,600 trips to space. Is that right? Close. Yeah, 1,600. 1,624. Oh. I forgot you knew so much about <laughs> Virgin Galactic. I, I, was trying to I, actually I heard he spent 600 million. Yeah, that's the yeah. number I heard, actually. So yeah, 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 400 million was the kind of the low end of, um, of, I think it was what he reported in January um, you know, in the the filings they have to report, but I'd say it's probably a lot more. Than yeah, that. yeah, well, yeah. I'd uh, heard six hundred mil. Six hundred million is the uh, GDP of American Samoa, which is the only primary he won. Is that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> but so uh, I assume he's going to move there now and be greeted <laughs> like some sort of god king. <laughs> it's amazing to be able to throw six hundred million at something to give it a shot and not even care. Like yeah. literally, like I'll give he it a shot. That, he found that like yeah. down the back of his helicopter seat. You know, like it's. <laughs> <laughs> and but if had he gone further, of course, I'm sure he had a, a war chest of what, maybe yeah. one and a half billion. Oh, yeah. at least he's got sixty billion dollars in net worth. He could have literally just like spent whatever amount, and it wouldn't have made. You're a talking difference. real cash there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what, what was that phrase? <laughs> at some point, it starts to make. It's that you're actually talking about real money. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So moving on then to, to matters more related to the podcast. Um, last week was a particularly bad one for the market. Rocked by coronavirus fears, the market entered its fastest correction since the Great Depression, down more than 10% in just six consecutive days. Um, kind of digging more into that, the S&P 500 posted its biggest single day drop ever last Thursday, falling 4.4%. And overall, an estimated $6 trillion was wiped off US indices last week. To put that into some context, US student debt figures are currently around $1.6 trillion, So, a lot of money. Um, Rory, I'll come to you first. Can So, obviously, the, the topic on everyone's mind is the coronavirus. So, can we blame this massive sell-off specifically on the coronavirus? Uh, I'm going to hit you with a bit of Latin. Okay. Right. Just <laughs> That's to, exactly what just, I wanted. <laughs> just to raise the level of debate in this podcast, because I do think we've been letting our listeners down. Have you ever heard the phrase, post hoc ergo proctor hoc? No. It means, it, it translates, I'm going to let myself down here, it translates something like, after it, therefore, because of it. Okay. 
So basically, it's like just this thing happened after this thing. Therefore, it was caused by that thing. So we've actually now launched a philosophy podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Correlation does not imply causation. Well, no, it's it's so it's an informal fallacy that that says just because something happened before something else does yeah. not mean it was the cause of it. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Um, I'll give you a little like breakdown of something else, which is in April two thousand and nine, there was an outbreak of an influenza-like illness in Mexico which spread to the United States quite rapidly. In June, the World Health Organization declared a global pandemic, which was the first time it had done so since 1968 with the Hong Kong flu. And in October, President Obama declared a national emergency. And by the time it had kind of leveled off, the H1N1, as it was called, had killed about 18,000 people. Yeah. What do you think happened during the mar- to the market during that time? It went up. Oh, it went up. It went up 40%. Wow. <laughs> So, like, and obviously because what had happened beforehand was that America or the stock market had seen one of the biggest crashes in its mm. history. Mm. So no one, the market, like, people cared about H1N1, but the market didn't really care. They yeah. were more yeah. worried about getting, you know, there was fears of the next Great Depression. Yeah. That was what people were worried about. So can you compare the two? Probably not, but... It's, it shows that like the market is going to behave a certain way based yeah. on a number of factors. We've just had the longest bull run in history. The market was at all-time highs just a couple of weeks ago. Um, and then suddenly there's a virus outbreak. Mm. It gives people a reason to for the market to go down. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't yeah, necessarily right. mean it's what's caused it. And of course, yeah. like, look, coronavirus is going to have uh, economic impact. Absolutely. There's no doubt the companies are going to have worse earnings over the next couple of quarters at least. Yeah. Maybe over the next couple of years. We don't know the extent of it. Yeah. But... I don't think that the, the the sell-off was purely based on the coronavirus. Yeah, it could have been any excuse, really, or any any incident, really, that prompted this. Yeah, like we were at a point, we were at a tipping point where literally any bad news could have caused a sell-off. Mm, and right. this, yeah. is, this happens to be the yeah. bad news that, yeah. that has happened. Yeah. Look, none of us are doctors in here. We don't know how long this is going to be. And, and there's no point in asking anyone in here what's gonna, <laughs> how long this is going to last or yeah. what the, the, the long-term effects are going to be. But I don't, think that it's like I think that the sell-off was probably going to happen anyway mm-hmm. regardless of a coronavirus happening yeah. I think yeah. we were well due uh, a pullback yeah. yeah I mean the fact that it happened so fast was was worrying but yeah and um, you know the market's just behaving very odd at the moment yeah <laughs> it well, is it's the, the oddest I've observed I'd say in 12 or something years on last Friday I sat watching the stock market for I think about 12 hours nonstop, uh, starting in Japan, moving to London, moving to US when it opened and just trying to read what was actually happening money because, uh, you know, the the news, the hysteria, whatever you want to call it about coronavirus was out and I was keen to see how the market would respond and it's exactly that. It's very, it was just confused. It was, stocks were moving wildly up and below their opening price plus and minus 5, 10, 12 yeah. percent. There were stocks that just you'd see drop by 15 percent up on on business, like close of business by 7 percent. And yeah. it just was bizarre. I yeah. know there was like, I mean, I know we don't like to talk about points on the Dow, but there mm-hmm. was like a thousand point Dow swings in the middle of the day where yeah. like at one point it was up 500 yeah. points and then it was down 500 points. And it's yeah. like, you rarely see that. Yeah, and so rare, yeah. It's been a long time. I can't remember the last time where on the way into work, I was actually checking the futures. I think yeah. it was back. Do you remember when uh, there was a kind of Black Monday in China, maybe four or five years ago, and yeah, it was like yeah. it was like everything was driven by China for a couple of weeks. Where if China was up 
the American stock market would be up and if it was down, the American stock market would be down. I, whenever I used to come into work, I used to always check the futures. I haven't done it since then until kind of yeah. last week yeah. where I was like, yeah. I wonder what's going to happen today because yeah. it's so, you really don't know what's going to happen. That's right, yeah. yeah. Well, well, speaking of kind of odd behaviour on the market, on Tuesday then of this week, the Fed delivered an emergency rate cut um, to co- try and soften, I think, the impact on the market of this panic. And it seemed to be the exact wrong thing to do. What were your thoughts on that, Rory? Such a well. First of all, like the fact that the market went down like three percent after yeah. a fifty points rate cut, I've never seen that before. It probably has happened, but I've never seen it before. But it just seemed like a really odd thing to do. Like it's like not being an economist, I'm not sure exactly how this works. But my understanding was you cut rates in order to free up cash to increase. Demand, yeah, but we're not in a demand. This this isn't a demand problem. It's, it's a supply problem. problem. Yeah. Like we're mm. we're worried about supply from China, and you know we don't have the parts to make iPhones, so everyone's tearing their hair out. So I don't yeah. know. I I don't know what the what the logic behind it was. It seems it very much seemed like they're just cutting rates based on what the stock market does, which doesn't seem like a very good idea. Mm. Yeah, I saw one tweet and was like, they're trying to distract the coronavirus with getting a mortgage out by cutting rates. <laughs> As <Just> someone <laughs> said, you can't uh, you can't print vaccines. <laughs> yeah, it just seemed like a quite a heavy-handed approach um, to probably a very nuanced problem. Yeah, look, again, not an economist, don't know how, how don't know the ins and outs of it, but um, just seemed like a bizarre move to me. And the fact that the market reacted so negatively shows that maybe there's some distrust there now or yeah. you know I remember one it was only a few months ago where there was like really bad employment numbers came out which typically would send the market down but it actually sent the market up because yeah. people were like oh bad employment numbers means they're going to give us a rate cut like it yeah. becomes so <laughs> skewed yeah um, so it was like we don't four want chapters good, ahead. I know yeah, yeah. everyone's yeah. like it's like chess everyone's thinking way too far ahead um, so yeah I don't know what was going on with that rate cut it's you know the central banks probably shouldn't be getting involved in this stuff. It's more of a medical issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So let's move on from coronavirus because I think we're, we're all kind of tiring of talking about it. Um, the biggest news from the last week, apart from the virus, was the announcement that Disney CEO Bob Iger was stepping down. Um, Iger has led the company since 2005 and it's fair to say he's been at the forefront of probably one of the most important um, periods in the company's history, leading the biggest transformations, including the acquisition of studios like Pixar, Marvel and Lucasfilms, the acquisition of pretty much most of 21st Century Fox and the launch of the new streaming service Disney+. Plus. Um, why did Iger choose to step down now, Rory? It seems like a bit of an odd time, seeing as Disney+, Plus has just kind of been unleashed to the world. We don't really know why he chose to. He had a couple of. He had, I think, it was fourteen months left on his current contract. Yeah, um, and it was it was totally it was a real shock. Like no one saw it coming. Um, they just assumed he'd see out the rest of his contract. But like he's stepping down. It's like he's not stepping down per se. He's moving into a more kind of creative chairman role uh, earlier than he probably was going to anyway. Although now he says he definitely is leaving. <laughs> uh, he's just like absolutely leaving in 2021. Um, I just like, I was reading over the, I mean, the history of Disney is probably one of the most, like, it's so filled with intrigue and scandal. And it's like one of the most interesting companies, I think, the history of it uh, yeah. is just amazing. Um, and there's probably no other company besides maybe Apple where 
who has been CEO has been it's been so evident that that was their era you know yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah. That, that yeah, you know this was yeah, yeah that's really, right like yeah. things change so massively based on who the CEO is you know like Walt died in 1966 and his brother took over for a couple of years and then the kind of there was a couple of smaller family members who were running the business and they went through like a really tough time in the 70s and, and early 80s where there was a total loss of kind of the creative soul of the business was gone. They were opening up all these theme parks badly that weren't working. It got so bad that in 1984, a guy called Saul Steinberg actually launched a hostile takeover bit of the business um, with the intent of of breaking it up and selling yeah. it for parts, um, which I mean, can you imagine if Disney wasn't a <laughs> yeah. company today? Yeah. You know, it actually got to that point. He nearly was successful. Um, he wasn't, and the uh, the Sid Bass family came in and saved the business and brought in a guy called Michael Eisner, who uh, gets a very bad rap. Uh, you know, history has not looked kindly on Michael Eisner as a CEO, although like because of a, a number of high profile blunders, but he brought along with him a guy called Jeffrey Katzenberg and the two of them together did completely turn that business around. Um, they focused heavily on the Touchstone label to produce more adult oriented content. They had hits like Who Framed Roger Rabbit, which was one of my favourite movies when yeah, I was growing yeah. up. Um, he got Disney into cruise lines. Uh, which is now one of their biggest businesses. And of course, he purchased ABC, yeah. uh, which brought along with it a very talented young executive called Bob Iger, who, wow. um, when Bob Iger first came, everyone thought he was going to quit because he hated, he didn't like Eisner. He hated being micromanaged. And uh, Michael Ovitz, who was um, Eisner's kind of right-hand man, kept trying to kind of smooth him with expensive gifts, which Iger just absolutely hated. He didn't like that attitude <laughs> at all. And everyone thought he was leaving, but actually Iger could see the company was in disarray and kind of very shrewdly positioned himself as the new heir apparent or the the alternative to an Eisner yeah, Disney. yeah. And in 2006, got the job and like he totally changed the business again. Like the business completely revamped and really focused hard on family entertainment. And, you know, obviously what you mentioned before, all those acquisitions he made, like building this huge IP juggernaut of anything family related is Disney. It's mm-hmm. the instant thing you think yeah. of, you know. And um, this move now, you know, he, he kind of, it felt like it was time for him to to move on. He'd gotten them to this point. They're just about to launch Disney Plus in Europe. It's like, now it's time for another phase. Yeah. 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 Now, who he brought in was odd. Bob, yeah. Bob Chapek. Yeah, Bob Chapek. Who, Chapek, sorry. Um, a lot of people thought it was going to be a guy called Kevin Meyer, who had been Iger's kind of right-hand man over the years and it helped with all these acquisitions and it was running the direct-to-consumer business. So if you think of Disney as their future is in direct-to-consumer streaming, yeah. if that's the new phase, you would assume he was yeah. going to be the CEO. I think everyone did assume he was going to be the CEO. But they brought in Bob Chapek and I'm sure Iger had a part to play in that and being the shrewd businessman wouldn't have picked someone he didn't think was going to be the person to run the business. Mm. Uh, apparently he's like, he's not, he's pretty much the total opposite of Iger from yeah. everything I've read. He's yeah. not the happy, smiley, affable CEO. He's a tough businessman. Don't expect to get a hug off him. Uh, <laughs> you know, yeah, I heard the same. I heard the same. But then he's been running their parks and resorts mm. segment for years and that mm. is their biggest moneymaker. Yeah. You know? yeah, and it's it's one I often think is, is forgotten about. It's, it's such an old world kind of part of their business, but how how big their parks and resorts really are. 
Yeah, it's huge. It's like it's. I think it's their biggest revenue generator. And you know, one of the great things about we've talked about before about Disney Plus is that it's it's just a small part in a huge, much bigger organization. Mm. You know, mm. Netflix as a company, I love Netflix as a company, but they are relying a hundred percent on people streaming and subscribing yeah. to their business. Yeah. Um, Whereas Disney Plus is just, it's such a tiny little part, even even at, what, they've got 30 million subscribers. Yeah. You know, they don't need to make money off Disney yeah. Plus. That's only just getting getting Disney onto the TVs, getting kids looking at the characters, wanting to buy the merchandise, wanting to go on the cruises, wanting to go yeah. to the resorts, wanting to go to the, the cinema. Like, it's, to them, Disney Plus is just a part of a much bigger... It's another bigger, entry point yeah. kind of into the ecosystem. Absolutely, yeah, and that's why they're able to charge less and why they're not... It doesn't have to be profitable for them for... It might never be profitable for them I if mean, they don't want it to be. It's, like, it's an incredible story, and that was really well explained. You should write a book on Disney, that's for sure, Rory. But the uh, the share price in recent weeks has fallen from around 150 bucks to around 120 And I, I, from what I'm looking at, just three data points informing that sell-off, which is, of course, the effect of coronavirus on the theme parks, the effect on the cruise liner business, and the change of CEO. And uh, I actually believe that Disney today is as good a value a giant business as I've seen for years. That's When I look at even just normal metrics, it actually looks like an outstanding investment. I'm sure they have on what they must have on their books, the value of all the real estate they own, the literally land value of what they own. I mean, right now, I think the market cap of Disney is like circa 200 billion. But when you look at the 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 sum of all the parts, it just doesn't seem to me to be a business where 200 billion seems like a business that yeah. should be worth a lot more. It's incredible when yeah. you, yeah, like when you compare it to the big yeah. tech giants. Yes, exactly. It compared to those. It is, yeah, absolutely. I think well, Netflix is probably circa 160 billion market cap at the moment. I don't have numbers in front of me. Disney's around 200 billion. To think that they're in the same ballpark, to me, just just doesn't make sense. Now, you can't do like-for-like comparisons with market cap. It's like comparing an elephant to a cruise liner. It's not it's not a relevant comparison, mm. but people like benchmarks. Yeah. And I just feel that Disney is a business that not isn't you know hasn't hit its its uh, true potential yeah. as a, as an investment. Yeah, it feels like there's an awful lot more to unlock in that business. Yeah. Um and maybe you know they are they have been seen as one of those businesses that never had adopted to the kind of the new world of technology and streaming is obviously yeah. their, their their first real foray into that. Yeah, yeah. A last point then. So there's four of us here: Luke on sound, our sound engineer. Um, so who's subscribed for Disney Plus? I haven't yet. I Luke has. Can yet. I have. Luke, Luke has. So can you do it pre? Can you pre? Yep. Uh, pre- so yeah, there's yeah, a discount. So it's fifty nine euro or sixty euro, I think. And speaking of Disney, terrible news. What? Baby Yoda dolls are gonna <laughs> be postponed due to the coronavirus. Oh please, no. <laughs> it's sometimes until when? I, it was bad enough with the new Bond movie being postponed. Are you still but long, Baby Yoda? It's gonna hurt my. That's gonna hurt my um my prediction thesis. The senseless virus virus. <laughs> <laughs> the true victims. The true victims yeah. sometimes. <laughs> All right, moving on. Uh, so there's loads of great stuff to check out in my Wall Street app at the moment, including March's Stock of the Month report. Don't forget that there's also brand new Stock of the Month podcast in the My Wall Street app too. This is a subscriber-only podcast where Rory and I chat about the one stock in the My Wall Street shortlist that we like most at the moment. Uh, March's Stock of the Month podcast will go live in the My Wall Street app next week, so make sure to go in and check it out then. Uh, Emmett, you're going to do the company we never talked about today, and it is Mercado Libre. 
It is indeed, James. So Mercado Libre is a stock, like so many, that I bought and owned moons and moons and years ago and completely regret selling. Um, most especially now that it's up around sixfold in value in the last four years. Let me rewind a little bit and say, so Mercado Libre uh, literally means free market in mm. Spanish. And um, Mercado Libre operates in 18 countries, but primarily in Brazil, Argentina and Mexico. And as we like to do around here, it's probably best visualised, although not entirely correct as saying it's like the eBay of Latin America. Yeah. Or at least that's how it was once described. And if we just take a quick look at what Mercado Libre looks like today, just before we kind of go a little deeper, it's a $31 billion business. And as I said, four years ago, it was about 100 bucks a share. So it's up about sixfold. Uh, it's about 642 bucks a share at the moment. And it's a business that uh, when you look through the numbers, as anyone can freely do on Yahoo Finance or equally, you find a lot of very nice numbers about the business. For example, insider ownership, something we, we value around here is is about is nearly 12% and to find a business that's worth 31 billion dollars of which one eighth is owned by insiders, which is generally defined as senior executives, um, founders, um, and and key members of staff. To have one eighth of a thirty one billion dollar business uh, owned by the insiders is a very strong sign. Yeah, uh, because everyone inside really wants the business value to be reflected in a share price. They've skin in the game. Yeah. They've skin in the game. I mean, it has has a load of cash on the balance sheet. It's about two and a half billion dollars cash. So when you look through the numbers of Mercado Libre, um, you really do see a lot of things to admire, and it looks like a great business. The I guess when when I think of Mercado Libre and, and having bought shares, I can't even recall when, but it must have been fifteen years ago. Um, it was tantamount to an investment in Latin America. This was a way of exposing your portfolio to the digital growth yeah. in Latin America. So geographic diversification Geog- and truly geographical diverse diversification. Like as I say, it's covering fifteen, uh, sorry, eighteen countries, mm. and uh, you're getting in to a business that has operations that. Uh, it's kind of gone far beyond being the eBay of Latin America now. It, it has five main business units. They have a marketplace, which is its platform for users to sell products. They have their Mercado Pejo, which is the payment platform for online yeah. sales. It's the Mercado uh, Publicado, is the advertising portion of their business. There's Mercado Shops, which is a tool designed to enhance the platform's overall ecosystem. And then there's the Mercado Credito, which is the company's credit line. Yeah. So it has five business units. And to say, as as was once described, that it was it is the eBay of Latin America really does it's undersell. It. It's, it's too reductive entirely. Like Shopify and Square, entirely. And other, other this is businesses it. There too. Yeah, you're right. It, it could you could as easily say it's the Square of Latin America, although we prefer to reserve that idiom or uh, turn of phrase for Stoneco. Um, but it, it is, you could call it the, as you say, the Shopify, uh, the Spotify. Shopify. Thank you. <laughs> Shopify of Latin America, you could call it the Stripe of Latin America. So it it is a business that is truly admirable from a numbers perspective. So what what really matters to us is that's great. It's now a $31 billion business. It's 642 bucks per share. But is it a good investment today? And um, the consensus view, which frankly has never made anyone rich, if you ask me, is that it's a little overvalued. Yeah. But I happen to disagree with that. I still think that Mercado Libre is the best investment 
that I've seen for exposure to 18 countries in Latin America. It offers so many solutions for so many business owners in so many countries um, that I, I think that its future is just as bright today as it was um, 5, 10 or 15 years ago. Yeah. It's in a much stronger position. It's a known brand. And it um, and it, the business itself, and I looked at the last quarter's reports, um, it, its net margins are... Um, our, our net revenues are growing faster than its gross billings as a percentage, which really means the businesses are getting a little more efficient. Yeah. But equally, you can see cost creeping up on two particular line items, which is the shipping and distribution. It seems that uh, they pay for the shipping of products bought on their platforms and they've spent quite a lot on marketing, which is a long play. And yeah. marketing really is just compounding your brand into the minds of buyers. So I, I, I can't actually find a reason to dislike Mercado Libre, even the fact that they've gone into a strategic partnership with businesses that were once regarded as uh, rivals, and that is specifically PayPal and, and yeah. divisions of PayPal's business like Zoom. So they, they are a business that have very strong strategic partnerships with the companies that otherwise you would think are, are their biggest rivals. Okay. And eBay, for example, was once a shareholder in yeah. Mercado Libre and as far as I recall, dumped the shares but with the greatest of um, friendship. It's almost as if they <laughs> sold the share and then decided to make each other even stronger. And yeah. the history of Mercado Libre has a bit like Disney. It's not as interesting as Disney but has so many different verses and chapters and like aspects to the business. It is really, I think, an awesome way to get exposure to the giant, giant um, market that is Latin America. Absolutely. Rory, are you a fan of Mercado Libre? Yeah, I, I really like Mercado Libre. Yeah. Um, I've, I mean, one of the, not to harp on, because I think you've covered quite a lot there, but like, I always think with Mercado Libre, you know, if you think about how they've performed over the last 10 years in what has been, you know, at times very hostile environments. Imagine what they're going to do when times are good, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah that's right. Yeah. You know, that was always one of the, the criticisms, like, oh God, you wouldn't invest in Latin America. Think of all like the corruption down there and, yeah. the, and the political instability. It's like, well, look at how well they've done during all this, you know? Yeah, <laughs> it's true. And they're incorporated in the US. They're run from the United States. And as far as I recall, they were founded by um, uh, someone who was in Stanford University at the time, and and so it's a business that understands Latin America and the many countries within, and and is run to U.S. standards, which yeah. uh, I happen to believe are the best. <laughs> <laughs> it's been a big winner for us too, up about one hundred and thirty percent since we picked it yeah. three years ago. Yeah. So that is Mercado Libre, the company we never talk about. Let's move on to Jargon Busters. And Emmett, I'm going to keep you talking and throw the first question towards you. Um, one of our users asked, is iRobot a technology company? I thought that was a great question. Yeah. Because my, my kind of gut reaction was, yeah, of course it is. Yeah. Uh, and I, you know, the formal definition of a tech company, and I read here, is a technology company is a type of business and that entirely focuses its development on the manufacturing of technology products or providing technology as a service. Yeah. But that's a very simple strapline. You know, like, the question is, iRobot a tech company? You can take that question and go, is Apple a tech company? Mm. And you can have an experience with Apple rare as it might be where you walk into their shop or their store and the only thing you buy is an iPhone cover. Yeah. You've bought a piece of plastic 
and the only product you've bought from Apple is a piece of plastic. So is it to you a tech company? Yeah. Uh, like, I know it sounds... So to go deeper on whether iRobot is a tech... Well, well just on that point, like, yeah. like recently, I think the most famous example of someone claiming themselves a tech company was WeWork. Yes, entirely. Which yeah. you know, definitely weren't a tech company. No, no, no. And in fact, so it was a, a, it was a, a blog, uh, Stratechery, that that Rory or maybe you James switched me on to Ben Thompson's blog which is absolutely yeah. wonderful piece of writing um, he actually asks the question what is a tech company and if so is Peloton and WeWork a tech company Yeah, and that was very interesting because Peloton and iRobot you can really see the, how similar they are uh, structurally. Mm. You you have to take delivery of a piece of hardware it's connected to the internet and um, it, it it exists in your home so you can just see that the parallels. This blog post by Ben Thompson is well worth the read to go deep on whether a company truly is a tech company. And he says there's five evaluation points that a tech company does five things. It creates an ecosystem like a, a, like a, a social network. Yeah. It has zero marginal costs. So you don't, it doesn't have to ship hardware, hardware yeah. I guess. Um, it improves over time. It offers infinite leverage so it can kind of serve the whole world and it has zero transaction costs. Okay. So those five bullet points, if we, if we superimpose those onto Netflix and ask, is Netflix a tech company. So the first one, it creates an ecosystem. So with Netflix, there's no real software-created ecosystem. Mm. They 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 create content which they distribute. So that's kind of a red light on the yeah. traffic lights. Netflix um, shows are delivered at zero marginal cost without the need to pay distributors. Um, though there's kind of bandwidth cost. So yes, they, there's there's a tick on the zero marginal cost. Their products improve over time. So that's a, this, that's a green traffic light. So we've read green, green. Netflix is able to serve the entire world because of its software. It gives them more leverage over their competition. And then finally, it can transact with anyone over their self-serve model. Uh, so therefore, what you're, when you run um, Ben Thompson's uh, measurement over Netflix, you can conclude that, yeah, it's a tech company. Yeah. So bringing that to Peloton, and we're going to get to iRobot, yeah. so Peloton is the one that Ben Thompson uh, takes a look at, and he says, while like, it's available as an app, the full experience requires a four-figure investment okay, in a bike, yeah. and that needs to say is not a zero marginal cost offering. Um, its product does improve over time, uh, the size, weight, and installation of, of a Peloton bike uh, it means that the distribution is is hard going. I mean, pr- principally they they sell in the US, UK, Germany, so it's not switch it on everywhere. Yeah, and it has a high touch installation process. So he said it's pretty iffy Peloton as these five factors go. Um, as to whether Peloton is in fact a technology company, mm. which brings me on to iRobot. And if we apply those five lenses that Ben Thompson defined to iRobot, does it create an ecosystem as like a social network? No, no. it does not. Uh, has it zero marginal cost? In other words, no hardware? No, it does not. Uh, does it improve over time? Yes, um, it learns fully learns about the, the, the new eyebrow robots learn to shape your home. Yeah. Uh, when I look at the map of my home on my iPhone and the iRobot's done a run around my house, I can see things that might have been left on the floor that it's actually, uh, you know, walked around. Yeah. <laughs> and um, it, it it is sharing Wi-Fi mapping with Google. So yes, it, it does improve over time as far as I'm concerned. It, does it offer infinite leverage? Can it serve the whole world? Well, 
an iRobot is lighter than a Peloton and it's easier to ship and you know I got one delivered to my home the day after buying it so I think it why not infinite leverage its leverage is easier than it's more widespread than a Peloton and does it have zero transactional costs no it doesn't you know you have to ship hardware so is iRobot a tech company you know I think so you know, more so than like Samsung, Samsung's home appliance business. So you could say is Samsung Fridge a tech company? Yeah. And, and the thing about the real question is iRobot a tech company is, a, is almost tantamount to love. You know, it's, it's hard to define. You either know it, you know it when you see it or feel yeah. it. So like, I look at my iRobot, I see it walking around the floor. I'm sure in 20 years people will laugh at how primitive it was. But yeah. right now, I get a kick out of its high techness yeah. <laughs> so as far as I'm concerned it's a tech company but if you run it through the absolute you know mm, the rigid mm, lenses yeah it might just be a hardware company with some with some decent software okay interesting thanks for that Emmett um, so the next question we got here came via the My Wall Street app and this customer asked with the US opening sports gambling laws are there any companies you guys are keeping an eye on in relation to this Rory I know you wrote a daily insight in my Wall Street area about this earlier this, uh, this week yeah so it's not legal in the United States yet it, it is in certain states mm. Um, the Supreme Court, I think in May 2018, struck down a previous bill that had made it illegal federally, but obviously every state now has to come in and decide how they're going to legislate it yeah. on their home turf. And obviously every state has different uh, different things that they want to do, and some of them are actually kind of really odd, as yeah. I discussed in the, in the Daily Insight, like... Um, Mississippi will allow you to gamble on your mobile device, but only if you're standing with inside a casino, uh, which doesn't make <laughs> a lot of sense. Yeah. Rhode Island has this really bizarre, like if you want to get a, a gaming license in Rhode Island, you have to answer these this like ream of questions, which includes, did you ever own a gun? And uh, do you get on with your mother-in-law? Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very telling question. You're joking, I'm no, this, no, this is totally true. I read this on the, the, bizarre. the Financial Times. So yeah. seemingly then nobody has a... <laughs> well, so, I mean, like the thing is like why... You know, it's so. First of all, gambling gambling has been going on. Sports gambling has been going on in the US for forever. You know, and it's my personal view has always been: why would you make something illegal if it's already happening? Mm-hmm. Like, you know, mm-hmm. you're just you're just putting a you're just turning a blind eye to what's already happening. It's better to regulate things, better to get them into the better to have some control over things. Yeah. Yeah. So, I think this is a positive move, even though as we've seen in the UK, where sports betting is been around for a long long time it has quite severe social impacts yeah you know there's research to suggest in the uk alone half a million gamblers half a million problem gamblers have had their lives damaged by debt depression family breakdown or in the worst case of suicide so it's interesting that like what is a mature market in the uk is seeing all these problems and it's just opening up in the us so you you wonder like are they going to learn any lessons from their neighbours across the pond. And you would really hope so, yeah. You would really hope so. But mm. then at the same time, there's an awful lot of money uh, yeah. in this. This is being described as America's next gold rush. Okay. Um, the gambling compliance was an industry research firm values the market at up to $8.1 billion by 2024. But, and this is a big but, the American Gaming Association believes that there's $150 billion in illegal sports betting in the US every year. So there's a very wide gap there in terms of notes, really no one knows at the moment. Um, And this is all like, there's a lot of things that have kind of 
come into this now with dirt so that it's being legalized it's slowly being legalized pretty much across the country i think there's 20 states who have it legal now in some form or another and and it's estimated that it'll pretty much be in nearly every state uh, in a couple of years but we can't really yet see who the companies are that are going to um, profit off it because it's so diffused at the moment yeah. you know like it, the, and strangely enough the companies that I have been looking at carefully are mostly UK based companies so the old term bookmakers the old style bookmakers who've been around in the UK for years uh, are getting in there really quickly yeah. and they're, mm. do, they're doing deals with the major casinos and getting sports books set up very very quickly and um, GVC is one. They are the owners of Ladsbrook Corral. Uh, William Hill are another one. Uh, there's a company 888. Uh, they're all they're all doing deals with American casinos. And the one that actually is really interesting to me is a company called Flutter Entertainment, which Irish people will know as the owners of Paddy Power. Yeah, uh, our national bookmaker, yeah, if you will, yeah. almost. <laughs> yeah, it's almost like a state enterprise. Is, yeah, <laughs> you know. um, Flutter bought the same month that that Supreme Court decision came out. Flutter bought a company called FanDuel, which we talked about a couple of years ago, which was one of these fantasy sports betting companies that had done very well uh, before, kind of the New York's attorneys, state attorneys started going, hold on a second, this looks very like gambling. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and there was a little bit of a, a to and fro there. Where, but they're, they are legally operating now. So they would be the company at the moment that I would look at and think they probably have one of the best chances, Flutter Entertainment. Okay. Mm. And unfortunately, they're not listed in the US. Mm, yeah. mm. But if this, uh, if this is as big a gold rush as we think it's going to be, I'm sure that's going to change. So coincidentally, it, I, sorry James, coincidentally yesterday I spoke at a Flut- Flutter Entertainment uh, get-together okay. uh, for staff um, and it really my, my angle was what's the difference in investing and gambling but it's, um, it's you're right, it's actually a very impressive business and, and it's a pity it's not listed in the US. Here's a question and I, I'm not very well read on the subject. Is there peer-to-peer peer-to-peer gambling uh, platforms so that we can basically it's a marketplace for gambling oh yeah Betfair so Flutter Entertainment on a company called Betfair oh so Betfair which that's is what they do peer yeah, you ah, can, I was unaware of that shows you how little I know about gambling yeah Cool. Um, so let's move on then to the elevator pitch. So this week's elevator pitch also comes from a customer question. Stephen emailed us at pod at mywallstreet.com asking if there were any private companies that Emmett and Rory are following in the hopes they'll go public in a few years. Um, Rory, I'll come to you first. Any public company, or sorry, private company you're hoping will go public? Yeah, there's a company that is based literally just around the corner, um, founded by two brothers, uh, from everything I've read and heard two lovely lads uh, called the Carlson Brothers yeah. and it's called Stripe and it's a payments company uh, you know I like payments companies mm. um, <laughs> and Stripe is kind of one of the big private payments companies that unfortunately we can't invest in uh, I just really like that business everything I read about them they seem to be very positive uh, people out there to empower entrepreneurs as best they can. They launched a service a couple of years ago called Stripe Atlas, which essentially let any company in the world incorporate as a US company for something like $500, yeah. which is like really amazing just, you know, just mm. from a good guy perspective, you it know, is, letting yeah. companies in the, you know, the the harshest parts of the world become a merit incorporating, get access to banking and funding and stuff like that. Um, and yeah, they seem to have a really good company culture. And I like them a lot. And unfortunately, I just saw their last valuation has them at like $35 billion. Yeah. Same as Airbnb, so yeah, $35 so, billion. Um, 
they don't seem to have any reason to go public. Yeah, <laughs> Why would they yeah. put themselves through that? Yeah. We are customers of Stripe here, aren't we? We are, yeah, yeah for our, our non-app products yeah. are, are generally powered by Stripe. Yeah, cool. great company. It is a great they, company, actually. Yeah. yeah, likewise. Uh, I I prefer your answer, Rory. Let me, st- <laughs> let me start with that, so we don't need to we'll, vote. We'll end it there. Yeah, we'll end it there. Uh, I guess the one that I'm at least very interested in it was off the back of a, a fortune article a while ago of the mega growth of TikTok okay. um, which is a Chinese video sharing social network owned by ByteDance and it's a it's a, for anyone who is exposed to anyone under the age of 15 yeah. I can imagine that they are fully aware of uh, TikTok's influence on the average home and the mind space occupancy that they have in a young generation and how they monetize it remains to be, I suppose, completely seen because it's still a private Chinese company. But uh, when you think of when you have completely dominated the process of somebody in their youth, you have a great position yeah. to sell them things when they're older. And it's a business that I, I just think it kind of creates short lip sync comedy and talent videos and it's it's a bit of fun, but its yeah. usage is off off the scale. Yeah. And I'm afraid I don't have the numbers at hand, but its growth, I think it's the fastest growing platform in the far. history of the world. Mm, it yeah. just overtook, I mean, everyone, everyone's bench, benchmark was the uptake of Facebook mm. and all, all the other social platforms, but TikTok just exploded. It was just there. It was like the most instant thing you could ever imagine. And that, therefore, I'm interested to see, the, watch the business, see if they float. Yeah, you Perfect. certainly have to give them credit for, you know, you could look at social media and go, well, like, there's no room left. You yeah. know, Facebook owns everything. Yeah, they, true. They, they were like, no, we're going to take them on. Yeah, they exactly. They successfully yeah. have, so. It's incredible. Well done to them. Yeah, yeah indeed. Very down with the kids, Emmett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, so that's about it from this week's Stock Club. Don't forget about all the great new stuff in the My Wall Street app at the moment, especially the Stock of the Month podcast. Make sure to go in and give that a listen. If there's anything you want us to discuss or explain in the next episode of Stock Club, make sure to get in touch with us on Twitter that's at mywallstreethq or email us at pod at mywallstreet.com that's p-o-d at mywallstreet.com and don't forget to subscribe to Stock Club too and if you're enjoying it please leave us a review on whatever podcasting platform you listen to us on and from all of us here we'll talk to you in two weeks happy investing Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.